At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi, this is Dave Zirin from Edge of Sports. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the cultural conversation, you need to subscribe to the nation's newest newsletter, Books in the Arts. With this newsletter, you'll receive a curated selection of the nation's latest cultural criticism, along with a short essay exclusively for newsletter subscribers written by the Books in the Arts editors themselves. Don't worry, we won't clog your inbox. This world of books, art, music, film, and more will be delivered to your inbox every two weeks. It's something worth looking forward to. Subscribe to this thought-provoking, agenda-setting newsletter at thenation.com slash book newsletter. That's thenation.com slash book newsletter. All one word, subscribe today. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to Professor Cheryl Cookie, the editor of the Sociology of Sport Journal and a professor of American Studies, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Purdue University. She is the co-author of the new study, One and Done, The Long Eclipse of Women's Televised Sports, 1989 to 2019. It's a study that every time it comes out, I want to talk to Cheryl Cookie or one of the authors because it is always an eye-opener about the state of women's sports in the United States. I also have some choice words about Major League Baseball chose to move the All-Star game from the state of Georgia. Also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more, but first, Cheryl Cookie. Can you talk about the methodology that was used to figure out your results, where you looked, what you studied, how you came up with your conclusions? Yeah, so um, if I could talk maybe a little bit about the the origins stu- uh, the origins of the study, and that might kind Please. of help to sort of explain the, the methodology and the approach. Um, so the, the the study itself uh, came about um, as a result of a conference that was held um, in in the somewhere in the, the mid to late eighties. Uh, my colleague Michael Messner at the University of Southern California. And um, one of his colleagues, Margaret Carlisle Duncan, were in attendance at this conference. And the conference was hosted by the Amateur Athletic Foundation of Los Angeles, which is now referred to as LA84. And this is a nonprofit um, entity that's, you know, kind of promoting sport and sport participation. And it came about after the um, the proceeds or from the proceeds uh, from the 84 Olympics. And so they're at this conference and, and the conference is focused, or at least the session is focused on. Uh, sport media coverage, and the the speakers were giving uh, a number of examples of of um, racist and and sexist coverage in sport media, and sort of calling out 
um, you know, the, the journalists who were in the audience, um, by the way, this was a, not an academic conference, but a, a conference that was attended by those in the industry. And, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a call like, so, you know, we need to do better, right? And the response um, in the audience was one of, of, of resistance. And, and in fact, um, some claimed that, uh, you know, the speaker had sort of cherry picked examples um, that these were just really egregious anomalies and uh, didn't didn't reflect or weren't indicative of what sport media was. And and in fact, if if there was a you know kind of a, a deeper look, um, you know that 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 uh, there would be a different type of um, coverage that would would emerge from that. And so the the you know um, Amateur Athletic Foundation, now the LA eighty four, right, commissioned. Uh, Mike Messner and Margaret Carlisle Duncan, uh, to you know, who are both kind of experts in this area, uh, to do this research and said, hey, you know, can you help us get some data on this to to so we can figure out whether or not this claim that these sort of examples that we identified are are in fact you know sort of the anomalies and not sort of a more systematic pattern of of coverage in sport media. And so that's really how um, how the study came about. Why the focus on uh, LA local news, um, because, uh, you know, obviously the Amateur Athletic Foundation of Los Angeles is, is located in Los Angeles. Um, Mike was at, uh, and it still is at, at USC. And so, um, uh, and the focus was on televised news, um, highlight shows, and also um, in those earlier iterations, uh, looking at the broad differences in broadcast coverage of men's and women's events. So comparing um, the NCAA uh, Final Four men's and women's with respect to the broadcast coverage. And then I think, I can't remember if it was Wimbledon or the US Open um, tournaments with respect to men's and women's uh, coverage. And over the course of the years, um, the study sort of shifted and changed in terms of not so much like the sampling dates, um, which are March, July, and November, to try to get at a broad view of various sports that may be in or out of season. Uh, but as, as the years went by and, and conversations were happening around the results, which in fact, the early iteration of the study as, as um, you might be aware, right, the amount of coverage of women's sports was at 5%. And um, the, when you looked at the quality of coverage, it was very, um, um, you know, kind of sexist, humorous sexualization of, of women and women athletes, objectification and trivialization of women and women athletes. Um, those conversations um, brought up new issues, right, which is the local um, media said, hey, you know what, we're, we're, uh, um, uh, uh, we're limited in terms of our broadcast time. We, you know, our sports segment is two to five minutes. We just don't have time to cover women's sports after we get, you know, done covering all the really important events of the day, like men's football and men's basketball and baseball. Um, and, and where you really should be looking is at SportsCenter, because that's where you're going to see better coverage of women's sports, because, in fact, they have a whole hour um, to cover women's sports. And so in 1999, um, that's when I came on as a research assistant uh, for Mike as one of his graduate students. Uh, we added in SportsCenter into the methodology uh, to look at the coverage. And in fact, um, uh, the, the coverage of, of women's sports was actually lower um, than what was on the, the, the local affiliates uh, in, in a number of our iterations of the study. Um, and so what we really do in terms of the actual like process uh, is we, we turn on the TV, uh, we, you know, we record um, the, the broadcasts, the, the news, uh, sports center, and we go through and kind of track um, uh, 
the the amount of time spent on a particular segment. Um, we'll code the data for if it's men's or women's, what competitive level it is. It, does it include, um, you know, graphics, interviews, um, highlight reels, and then we kind of do a deeper dive in terms of the quality of, of coverage. Um, and then this last iteration of the study, I should add this on. Uh, we added in the coverage on online newsletters and social media um, accounts for these these same media outlets. And part of the reason why we did that, Dave, was because the conversations and the response from the media was, well, nobody watches television anymore. No one watches local news. Um, and in fact, you know, the ratings for local news ha have declined over the last couple of decades. No one watches Sports Center. Um, this this was from an industry insider. No one watches Sports Center. I haven't checked the, the ratings um, anytime soon, so I, I don't know if that's in fact true. But I, I was a bit skeptical. Um, and in fact, where you should be looking is online and on social media because that's where you know sports fans are getting sports information, and that's where you're really going to find the the coverage of women's sports. And so we did that, and and lo and behold, if if you've you know taken a look at the study, um, it's slightly better than the television. Um, uh, news that we captured in our sample, uh, but it's still, you know, nine to 10% uh, of the content. Um, and so that was really, I think, somewhat surprising for us. So in terms of percentages of sports coverage for women's sports, there's not a great deal of dis difference between 1989 and 2019. The difference is how that, I guess we call it marginalization, has been disseminated. Is, is, is that a, a fair summary? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that I would emphasize is that, you know, our sample is we're looking at um, sport news coverage, right? So so this isn't broadcast coverage. This, aren't, this isn't the actual events, but we're looking at how does the news media and the sport news media um, cover men's and women's sports? And in fact, yes, you're, you are correct. Um, over the course of the 30 years, um, we're, we're in some ways back where we started. Um, we we uh, uh, In 1989, it was about 5%. And now in 2019, we're we're back to five percent, where we had a couple of jumps uh, to about six or eight percent over the course of the period. But I, I do think you're right, Dave, that the the biggest change that we've seen um, is with respect to kind of the shifting quality of coverage. Whereas, um, as you mentioned, right, the kind of marginalization, um, sexualization has sort of dropped out, and I think that there's a lot of reasons as to why that is, and we can talk a bit more about that. Um, but you know, it's, it's as if the the sports media have um, gotten the message, right, that 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 sexism doesn't really sell. <laughs> um, and in fact, they're going to get a lot of pushback when that happens. Um, and so what we saw over the course of the study was that in the mid, by the mid 2000s, the ways in which women and women athletes were portrayed in, in, in the, the, the broadcast, or sorry, the news um, segments was really uh, in, an, in another stereotypical way of like the girl next door, um, focusing on athletes as mothers or wives of, of other famous uh, celebrities or male athletes. Um, so kind of a very conventional role um, that highlights femininity. And then by the, the mid 2010s, um, we even saw some of that drop out of the frame. And, and what we got was this you know, ostensibly respectful coverage that we had been advocating for, uh, where, you know, it's, it's focusing on the athletes as athletes, it's focusing on the events themselves. Um, so we're getting, you know, the, the, um, the highlights from the game, we're, we're learning about what happened um, in, you know, the sport itself, not 
you know, what Candace Parker does as a mom um, and raising her kids and balancing, you know, how do you balance being a professional athlete with having kids, that kind of uh, questioning, right? Um, um, but we, so we're seeing women's sports portrayed as sports. Uh, but when we, when we looked comparatively at the ways in which men's uh, stories were told and the, and the ways in which those were the kind of high production values uh, the exciting delivery, the um, colorful language uh, that's that's used in the men's segments was absent in the women's segments. And so it kind of creates this really sort of flat, monotone, uh, bland delivery style that that in in some ways subtly um, communicates to to viewers and audiences that that women's sports really isn't exciting. Um, it's it's somewhat boring and and maybe really you shouldn't be interested in it. Is that what you mean in the study when you talk about this phrase you use, gender bland sexism, being, as you put it, the dominant pattern in 2019 TV news? Yeah, gender bland sexism, that was actually something that emerged in the data, even in the 2014 study. Um, and, and that concept is um, sort of drawing on and playing with uh, a sociological concept uh, called colorblind racism. And this was a concept that was um, coined by a, a sociologist, Edward Bonilla Silva, uh, to describe the ways in which, you know, racism in, um, you know, the contemporary moment, and he was writing this, I think, in the early 2000s, um, how, how racism in that particular moment was uh, much more uh, covert um, and um, uh, rather than, you know, in comparison to sort of the, co the, the overt uh, racism of the Jim Crow South, right, or, or you know, come Jim Crow era. And um, so, so racism still exists in our society. It's just much more subtle kind of operating under the radar, uh, and most people don't pick up on it. And so we kind of took that to sort of talk about the ways in which sexism is now um, kind of operating in those similar subtle ways uh, in, this, in this space, so we're not getting that really explicit where anyone could point to and it's like, wait, you're you're doing a segment on, you know, the L.A. Lakers cheerleaders tryouts or you're doing, you know, and showing these really close up um, uh, camera angles of, you know, um, women dancing provocatively uh, or you're, you're you're focusing a segment on a naked bungee jumper um, who had painted her body with uh, green shamrocks um, and jumped over a bridge on St. Patrick's Day. Right. So you know, those are really kind of obvious examples, but being able to kind of pick up on the elements of sexism, it's like, oh, wait, you're, you're not including as many highlights, um, in this segment. You're not, um, we're not getting interviews, you know, post-game interviews with the coaches or the players, um, the segments, you know, 15 seconds long versus, you know, three minutes long. And so those kind of subtle, um, ways that the, through the coverage itself kind of, um, um, points to, uh, sexism, if that I, makes sense. Yeah, it does. Like, yeah. I was going to say, you've charted this, this enthusiasm gap by which the coverage mm -hmm. is, um, by the, which the coverage, by which the coverage is portrayed. Um, but you, but you saw a difference with the coverage of the U S women's national soccer team. Um, First of all, I guess I should ask that more as a question. Uh, did you see a difference in terms of the enthusiasm gap and amount of coverage of the U.S. women's national soccer team? And if there was a difference between typical sports coverage of women, why do you think that was the case? Yeah, 
Dave, I love this term enthusiasm gap. I think that's I'm going to I'm going to use that at, at some oh. point. So um, I'll, I'll be sure to, to quote you on that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that I'm glad you brought that question up because uh, the Women's World Cup, it just so happened that we um, our our sampling uh, time frame captured the end of the World Cup. So I think we had the the final I believe it was on Sunday, um, or at least we got coverage of it on Sunday, and then um, you know some of the the aftermath Monday and Tuesday with the parades and so on. Um, and this was actually a, a really important um, um, accident <laughs> in some ways because we were able to see what good coverage of women's sports looks like. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But I think what's also really interesting in terms of some of the um, in terms of some of the the uh, quantitative data was in fact that um, if we took the World Cup out of our um, out of the analysis that five to six percent that we saw on the local affiliates and ESPN Sports Center that was devoted to women's sports drops down to like three percent. So it, the the women's World Cup was really driving um, uh, the amount of coverage uh, that, that we had in our sample. Um, and in fact, I think uh, um, what we saw when we looked qualitatively was that the way that the sport media covered the turn or the the final um, and the, and its aftermath was much more uh, comparable to the ways that they talk about men's sports, right? So we we get a lot of excitement, um, you know, the both the local affiliates as well as uh, Sports Center had, um, you know, kind of. Uh, footage, video footage of, you know, the different watch parties, right? So you see like hundreds of, of people, this is obviously pre-COVID, you know, uh, hundreds of, and thousands of people gathered um, in these public spaces, you know, whether it's in Kansas City or Chicago or, um, and, and you see them, you know, these watch parties, a lot of excitement, um, people cheering, people watching the game, right? Which signals to the viewers at home, Right, that this is something that's exciting um, and that I should be, you know, excited about. Um, a lot of really cool graphics, um, um, uh, a, a number of different highlights from um, from the games, uh, post interview, uh, post interviews with uh, players, um, and so we just the the, the quality of coverage um, really, I think, in, in exceeded anything that we'd really seen before. Um, with women's sports. And I think a lot of that has to do, as we talk about in the paper, with nationalism. Mm. Um, and we've, we've seen this in other research that's been done. My, my colleague, uh, Andy Billings, and, and his collaborators uh, at the University of Alabama and elsewhere, um, you know, have done a, a number of studies looking at the, the quantity and quality of coverage of uh, men's and women's Olympic events. Uh, and in fact, what they find is, I think in the, the last study they did, um, from the 2018 PyeongChang Olympics uh, was that in terms of the broadcast coverage, so they're looking at broadcast as opposed to news, but at least within the broadcast coverage, um, th there's there's much more uh, uh, equity, equality um, with respect to content. And I think there was actually more um, broadcast coverage of women's events than, than men's. So we see this um, pattern emerge when it is a... Um, uh, elite level, high profile international event uh, where kind of nationalism can come into the frame. And so it's, it's, 
as 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 viewers as fans we're not watching women's sports we're watching america compete against other countries right so it's not women's soccer that we're watching it's the american women playing against you know the swedish women or you know the japanese women or or whatever the case may be um and so that kind of nationalist frame we saw co- coming through um, in, in terms of both the the commentary and the the graphics and and the the overall framing of the World Cup, mm. you, you know you've probably seen some of this coverage uh, about the NCAA women's and men's Final Four and, and the way that the some of the women are just destroying the men when it comes to things like Instagram, uh, social media. Um, time spent, all these things like that. It's just, it's having a much stronger social media Gen Z footprint than the men's. Um, Can you see social media acting as some kind of equalizer when it comes to coverage? Uh, And did you see anything that could lead us to think that social media could provide for a more level playing field? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it really depends on, you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about social media, right? So, and you know, for our study, uh, we were looking at the official social media accounts of the networks that we had sampled with the televised data. So NBC Sports, um, CBS Sports, ESPN, ESPNW, um, and and looking at the their Twitter accounts, right? And, and in fact, I think you know, as I mentioned earlier, really the content wasn't that significantly better um, in the sense that I think it was about um, uh, 9%, I believe, or 10%, somewhere around there. Um, And and so I think, you know, there's been some controversy in the past with with the NCAA's um, Twitter account, not actually the NCAA uh, tournament account not actually including the women's tournament in their content that they just focused on men right so however where i think the the kind of possibility for change is in is if is if with respect to um both the the ways in which um social media allows everyone um to be a content creator um or at least ostensibly you know anyone that has a um uh, you know, a Twitter account and, and internet access and those sorts of things, right? Um, and it allows for, um, you know, those sports, those athletes that might not um, be uh, recognized or valued um, or included in some of the legacy or mainstream uh, media coverage and media outlets to really have a space um, and a voice. And I think, um, you know, not just in terms of reporting, right, but also in terms of the ways in which, you know, viewers, fans, athletes themselves, um, and, and, and also, you know, other journalists um, can use that platform to, to push back and to speak against, um, you know, inequalities. And I think that's one of the really powerful um, uh, kind of functions of, of, of social media in this contemporary uh, environment is that it, it it allows for a a visibility and even a hyper visibility uh, of, of these um, uh, controversies of these inequalities uh, in ways that we might not have seen, um, or at least may have been more controlled uh, in terms of the narrative in the past. Wow, 
Um, thank you for that. I, you know, one big difference between 1989 and 2019 um, is the presence, existence of ESPNW. Uh, is, is there any, I mean, I guess I'm asking for opinion as much as I am uh, for any data that you can have, but um, is this idea of creating like the separate website, separate silo even for women's sports coverage, has this proven to be a benefit for women's sports coverage or has it instead been like, okay, you're here now in your corner so we don't have to worry as much about covering what you're doing? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I think that's one of the the, the tensions, right? Um, because I think I think spaces um, that uh, focus on women's sports are important, right? And so I, I, I don't want to downplay um, the role that that those you know those sites those platforms um, those voices can have and in fact you know some of my 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 favorite um, journalists um, you know kind of cut their teeth at, at ESPNW um, and so I think it's an important um, space an important site in terms of our study what was interesting is that the um, the online daily newsletters that we had included in our sample um, in fact ESPNW wasn't a daily newsletter. It was a weekly newsletter. Um, it's, it's, uh, publication was somewhat sporadic and that it wasn't always, um, weekly. And in fact, uh, unfortunately in the middle of our study, um, ESPNW or ESPN stopped publishing the newsletter. So we, we lost that data. Um, but what's the kind of important piece of this is that when we looked at, again, kind of slicing the data, um, a, a fairly, um, large proportion of, you know, that we're talking about paltry percentages to begin with, right? But a large um, proportion of that, that um, coverage of, that we saw in uh, women's sports uh, was in part because of um, ESPNW, you know, as well as the, the World Cup. Um, and, and so um, the, the, the issue that I have, Dave, is, and I think you pointed this out, right, is that I, I, it does create a... Um, um, a, a siloing of women's sports, right? And so, yeah, there you can have the space, but you're still outside of the mainstream, right? And it, and in some ways, I think it, it allows the the sort of sports center um, or the center of sports, as as Mike Mesner would call it, right? To to remain um, in what we what we called in the the paper, right? ESPN M, right? We have ESPN W mm-hmm. for women, and ESPN essentially is ESPN M. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, I think, I think that's an issue. Uh, but honestly, I think, um, the, the bigger piece of, of this puzzle and maybe something that we don't necessarily get to in our, our, in this particular study, um, but I've been thinking a lot about, um, is just the, the kind of ease in which, um, this, either the general fan of sports or just somebody who's, you know, not a, a, a kind of, uh, committed sport fan, but somebody who will sort of enter into sport fandom when there are these kind of, you know, big uh, sport mega events like the NCAA Final Four um, um, turn or the, the NCAA tournaments, uh, basketball tournaments, the, um, uh, you know, the Super Bowl, right, the Olympics, um, you know, so the non-sport fan who kind of comes in um, when these big events happen, it, it's much more difficult for for those folks to find content and to find um, coverage of women's sports. This isn't to say that it's not out there and it doesn't exist, but when it's siloed, when it's marginalized, when it's when it's on the edges instead of at the center, 
um, it, it just, it makes it more difficult for, again, just the, the average um, person or the general sports fan to get that information. Hardcore fans of women's sports will, will, you know, kind of curate their social media feed. They'll know who to follow. Um, you know, they'll, they'll um, 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 know which sites to go to, what blogs to, 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 to um, read, what podcasts to listen to. Um, and, but it just, it, it takes more work to find those spaces and it, it requires a much more of a commitment and investment in doing so. Mm. Well, you, you've been really generous with your time, professor. I, I do have one more question and it's more of a 2020 question. It's more for the next study, but are you foreseeing at all how you're going to incorporate the fact that in 2020 with all the protests after the murder of George Floyd, you had a lot of coverage of women athletes, particularly in the WNBA, as leaders of social justice movements, but as part of sports coverage. So less about their ability to play their sport and more about their social contribution and how you're going to uh, quantify that in terms of coverage. I love this question, Dave, because I think it sets me up to come on your show. Uh, and it may, it may be like uh, the, at the end of the year or next year. Um, oh. This is actually a, another project that I'm working on um, with my colleague, Dunya Antunievich, who's uh, at the University of Minnesota. And um, she and I are, are, are working on a, a book that focuses on uh, what we're calling articulations of feminism in sport media. And so it's a it's a different methodological approach than than what Mike and I have, have used in that longitudinal study. Um, and what we're really interested in, and we have a chapter that's on um, athlete activism, uh, that'll be a version of a paper that we published in Communication and Sport as well, um, where we focus on kind of the ways in which, um, and you know, not only uh, uh, women athletes uh, and women's sports leagues are are centered in this coverage, as you mentioned, in terms of their their activism around uh, social justice. Um, and, and, you know, kind of the, the um, activism that they um, participated in, in terms of, you know, the elections and getting people out to vote um, in, in Georgia. And so, um, but what we're really interested in is the kind of ways in which um, if we expand our, our sort of um, definition of what counts as sport media um, to look at rather than, you know, the, the specific um, uh, outlets themselves, but rather the the kinds of um, ways that sports get covered in these places that would ostensibly not be seen as sport media, like Vogue magazine, um, mm. or or Glamour magazine, or you know um, the New Yorker, what have you, right? The Atlantic. Um, that uh, um, there's there's kind of different narratives that are happening in these other spaces, uh, and and often those narratives are informed by um, feminisms and, and, and feminist ideals and principles. So, um, we could talk a little bit more about that, but I'll just, I'll give that up, you know, coming in summer 2022, um, in a world, in a world, you I think do, we call you, that you could do, you could do the movie, uh, the movie trailer, uh, voice on that one. Exactly. In a world, <laughs> but we're definitely going to see this as a, as a teaser for your return to the show. Um, I always ask all my guests uh, what music they're listening to these days, particularly when you're working something on something as demanding as, say, a book or a study of this nature. Well, what, what's on your playlist right now, Professor? Oh, gosh, that's, I love this question. Um, 
as, as I'm a, an avid fan of your, your show and I always find it interesting what people are listening to as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't listen to music when I work, but I listen to music when I work out. And I, I find that I've been really drawn to like synth pop, like eighties synth pop for whatever reason. I don't know if it's like just a nostalgia or a desire for, you know, kind of a happier time in my, my life, uh, um, you know, going through this pandemic. Um, and so I, I think I'm, I'm, I've been really obsessed with uh, Book of Love's Boy. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that song, but it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a really great song. And for whatever reason, when I was, you know, able to go to the gym and, and lift weights and work out in, um, what the Purdue students call the, the meat pit, um, which is all the, the free weights, uh, in, a, in our co-rec, um, I, I, I found that to be really, uh, inspirational as kind of one of maybe one or two other women in that space. So. it's awesome. Well, uh, Professor Cheryl Cookie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for the work that you and your colleagues did on this study. Um, it, it's always, always very illuminating, and we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me, Dave. It's always a pleasure. Uh, this is terrific, and we'll get you back on at year's end. Sounds great. I'm looking forward awesome. to it. Bye. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. I know I've got some choice words about what just went down with the Major League All-Star game. Okay, look. The great lie has been replaced by 50 little lies. 50 lies nestling in 50 states. The great lie, of course, is that if only there had been quote-unquote voter integrity, then Trump would still be in office. That's now playing out in state houses around the country. Nowhere has the little lie been embraced with more gusto than in the state of Georgia, the very state that was scrutinized by every GOP official for fraud after they got their asses kicked in the last election. They found nothing, despite Trump's felonious insistence that the GOP manufacture votes. Yet in the wake of their party's historic defeat, Governor Brian Kemp has banked his political future on the fiction that Georgia's GOP only got trucked because of an absence of this elusive election integrity. So they passed a set of Jim Crow laws buttressed by a set of Jim Crow lies. It's brazen as hell. Instead of competing for votes, the GOP has gone full white authoritarian in a manner that would have made Bull Connor blush. Kemp is serving up these oppressive laws with a hearty helping of slop Orwellian disinformation. It's Orwell for people who didn't do the reading. Or as Kemp tweeted, presumably while peering up to the sky for lightning bolts, his racist voter suppression bill, quote, expands access to the ballot box and ensures the integrity of our elections. In response, Major League Baseball decided to take a stand and move the 2021 All-Star Game out of suburban Atlanta. It was really the only decision they could make. Already there were rumblings from players and managers about boycotting the game. 
Already their own sponsors were pressuring them to do something. Already they have dealt with one former team executive's racism, remember Seattle, and did not want to deal with any more. The cognitive dissonance of a year when they would be celebrating Atlanta's own legend, Henry Aaron, while Jim Crow Georgia stood as the backdrop, proved to be too much to bear. Immediately, the GOP floodgates opened with one collective whine about cancel culture and the woke mob. No need to quote them. They are now baying at the moon about baseball, trans kids, Dr. Seuss, pretty much anything to distract from the unprecedented humanitarian crisis that has taken place on their watch. If there weren't so many dead bodies strewn about, this latest cancel culture mule would be high comedy. Baseball is about as liberal as George Will. It's as conservative as any institution that we have outside of official GOP circles. They are to radical social change what the horse and buggy was to the Model T. If anything, baseball's revulsion should be a wake-up call to how toxic these obvious racist voter suppression laws are to corporate America. If even baseball finds you to be too noxious a bedfellow, that should definitely be cause for some kind of self-reflection. Instead, they are doubling down in a fit of tantrums and martyrdom that would shame a teenager. Shamelessness is a political vulture, always looking to feed. And sure enough, we're seeing the return of Kelly Loeffler, last seen losing her Georgia Senate race and then being driven out of the WNBA for being too racist. She had the gall to issue a statement where she dared to invoke Aaron's name, saying, quote, the MLB had a chance to honor an iconic trailblazer and Braves legend Henry Aaron. Instead, they bowed to the woke disinformation campaign of the left. When it comes to what Henry Aaron would have thought, I'll go by his friend Dusty Baker, who said, that was a pretty big and bold move by baseball. I'm proud of the fact they stood by the voting rights of people. This is what Hank would have liked. Even though it's in his town, he had the rights of people at the forefront of his mind and his heart. To be clear, baseball did not move because of any kind of threatened player strike or upheaval from below. The players have had no chance to even meet collectively and discuss uh, what their approach to the game may have been. This is about Major League Baseball as an institution, unable to rectify how they're going to bring their sport into the 21st or even 20th century. They want to celebrate Henry Aaron and Jackie Robinson. They want to embrace the new faces that are making the game, like Kim Ang, Tim Anderson, and Fernando Tatis Jr. This would have been an impossibility with Brian Kemp lurking in the background. There are clearly mixed feelings about this in the league's various owners' boxes. The Atlanta Braves released a rather horrible statement, refusing to put the blame for this where it belongs, on Kemp and his ilk passing these laws. Then there are the Baltimore Orioles, one of several teams to issue statements far better than the Braves. Franchise owner John Angelos, in a statement co-signed by Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott, wrote, As the birthplace of civil rights icon Thurgood Marshall, we stand united with Commissioner Manfred in denouncing this malicious legislative effort to suppress voters in Georgia and other state legislatures. Baseball is our national pastime and preserving the right to vote is a pillar of our American democracy. The city of Baltimore and the birds of Baltimore applaud Major League Baseball's patriotism in supporting voting rights. And we encourage everyone to use this moment to fight for fair elections and register eligible Americans to vote and make their voices heard. Yes, there are many political figures in Georgia like Stacey Abrams who don't want to see any kind of economic boycott of their state 
But if Major League Baseball feels like its brand will be harmed by being in Georgia, whose fault is that? Baseball needed to make this move. It had to finally do more than talk a good game. The legacies of people like Jackie Robinson and Henry Aaron, along with the climate in this country created by the social movements of the last year, put them in a position where there really was only one choice they could make. Baseball has long said the right thing without doing anything. Well, they are finally doing something, and heaven forfend, it's the right thing. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now's the time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to everyone who is part of this decision by Major League Baseball to move the damn game. Uh, Whether you're talking about uh, corporations that felt like they couldn't possibly deal with the contradiction of talking about Black Lives Matter while supporting Major League Baseball, providing support to Jim Crow Georgia, or whether you're talking about the memory of Jackie Robinson, the memory of Henry Aaron, the Major League Baseball Players Association, managers like Dave Roberts. Let me be clear. Y'all did the right thing. I know there are people inside of Georgia who are saying that they are against any idea of boycotts or the All-Star game being moved. Well, Georgia politicians, first of all, they have to say that. You know, they have to support the economic growth and foundation of their state. So I get why they're talking. But Major League Baseball could not go ahead with this. And if people are angry about that, the fault should go to Governor Brian Kemp, as I said in the choice words for passing these horrific laws, not to Major League Baseball, for responding to them. Also, just stand up award for Dwayne Wade for standing with his kid on the Trans Day of Visibility. Shout out to you, Dwayne Wade. Shout out to your partner, Gabrielle Union, for always being an accomplice, not an ally, but an accomplice for trans liberation. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Goes to the NCAA. My goodness, did they get sunned in court this past week in the Supreme Court. And you know it's bad if people like Samuel Alito, Brett Kavanaugh, and Clarence Thomas are plucking your cards at every turn. Uh, Let me read you what Sam Alito, I've never quoted Sam Alito in my life, uh, but this is what he said. He said, The briefs that are submitted in support of the respondents paint a pretty stark picture and they argue that colleges with powerhouse football and basketball programs are really exploiting the students that they recruit. They have programs that bring in billions of dollars. As Justice Thomas mentioned, this money funds enormous salaries for coaches and others in huge athletic departments, but the athletes themselves have a pretty hard life. Gee, thank you, Sam Alito. 
They face training requirements that leave little time or energy for study, constant pressure to put sports above study, pressure to drop out of hard majors and hard classes, really shocking graduation rates. Only a tiny percentage ever go on to make any money in professional sports. So the argument is that they are recruited, they're used up, and then they're cast aside without even college degrees. So they say, how can this be defended in the name of amateurism? I mean, that's the argument, as parroted by Sam Alito. Some of us have been saying this for years and years and years. So many years we didn't have gray hairs on our head when we started making it. Hell, Upton Sinclair made these arguments in the 1930s. These are not new. But this current period when college sports and the revenue-producing sports are so awash with money, they really represent nothing more than the organized theft of black wealth. And that racist piece is not something that Samuel Alito dared touch, not surprising, since he's from the right-wing uh, Jim Crow rump of the court. But all of that being said, NCAA, this was your worst week. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. And that goes for you especially, Mark Emmert. My goodness, if you're not doing an apology tour about women's sports, I don't know what you're doing. You're facilitating the exploitation of these athletes. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much, Professor Cookie. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. Thank you to everybody out there listening. Please wear a mask. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.